Did you know that Julius and Ethel Rosenberg are the only Americans ever put to death in peacetime for espionage? And that Ethel Rosenberg is the only woman killed by the U.S. government for a crime other than murder? We'll discuss this and other interesting facts about Ethel Rosenberg with author Elisa Parenti on this episode of The Curious Professor. I'm Dr. B. Welcome to the Curious Professor podcast, where I take listeners on a journey of discovery to explore the people, places, artifacts, and natural wonders that spark my curiosity. On this episode of the Curious Professor podcast, we'll explore the case against Julius and Ethel Rosenberg with journalist and author Elisa Parenti. But first, a trivia question. In Tony Kushner's play, Angels in America, who does the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg haunt? I'll have the answer for you at the end of this episode. I'm thrilled to have Elisa Parenti on the show today. Elisa is an award-winning journalist, reporter, anchor, and storyteller. In addition to her work in journalism, Elisa has served as an adjunct faculty member at Georgetown University, teaching multimedia journalism and news writing. She earned a master's degree from Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism. She and her husband, Jim, are parents of two young women, and it is her deepest hope that a closer examination of history and women's rights can help improve the lives of her daughters and the world. When she's not writing or working, she's a prolific reader of true crime. When I learned about Alyssa's fascinating historical novel on Ethel Rosenberg, my curiosity was immediately piqued and I wanted to learn more. I hope this interview with Alyssa will spark your curiosity too. Welcome to the show, Alyssa. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here, Dr. B. What inspired you to write the novel Betrayal? It all started with a 60 Minutes story that I watched a couple of years ago in which they interviewed the sons of Ethel Rosenberg. I wasn't really familiar with the case. And in this interview, an appearance by her brother, who was still living at the time, he said in an interview that he admitted that he falsified his testimony, that his testimony was false. And I said, oh my gosh, how could this be? So So that kind of sparked an interest. And then I read everything I could get my hands on, a lot of nonfiction books about the Rosenberg case. And I started to realize that there was not much written about Ethel. And I thought somebody needs to tell the story of this woman. So that's kind of where it came from. And for those not familiar with the Rosenberg case, can you just give us an overview of who they are and what they're most known for? They're known as the atomic spies. However, a lot of people believe that they were not, in fact, atomic spies. In the case of Julius, in the intervening decades. This all occurred in the late 40s. They took an interest in Russian spies or people who were providing information to Russia. And it turned out that Ethel's brother, David Greenglass, was brought in for questioning. And he then turned over to prosecutors his own brother-in-law, who was Julius. And pretty much the government pursued the case that they were spies on behalf of Russia during World War II. And they brought the case forward 
and they were arrested in the summer of 1950 and were convicted. And both Julius and Ethel were the only citizens arrested for espionage, U.S. citizens, ever at that point. And it was in 1953, June 19th, 1953, that they were executed by electric chair in Sing Sing Prison. And in your book, you state that Ethel has been viewed in a polarizing way, either as a naive, dutiful wife or as a conniving, cold-hearted spy. Would you tell us more about that? A lot of people said, oh, she's older. This couple, they were in their 30s when they were executed. When they were married, and obviously throughout their life, Ethel was three years older than Julius. So the feeling was, she's got to be the leader here. She's the real behind the scenes, the puppet master. She's pulling the strings of what's really going on. She's coordinating this spy ring, if you will. And then there was another whole group of people who said, no, she's just doing the dutiful wife piece and she's standing by her man and that's what women did and that's what we do at that time. And I would argue that neither is portrayal. I think as humans, we just want to put people and things and everything into these binary categories. You're good, you're bad, you're this, you're that. And really, she's so much more. It's just so much more textured and nuanced who this Ethel Rosenberg person was. And so I think that that's what frustrated me when I was first reading. It seemed like a very two-dimensional presentation of a person and of a life. You also state in the copy for your book that Ethel was betrayed in a number of ways, that she was betrayed by her brother, by her country, by society. Can you give us more insight about what you meant by that? It's ironic that Ethel, who was convicted of betraying her country, was herself betrayed in so many different ways, in my opinion, first and most fundamentally by her brother, David Greenglass. So he was her younger brother. And he, when he was brought in, he actually worked at Los Alamos. And so he did have access to government secrets. And when he was brought in for questioning, he immediately betrayed his brother-in-law, Julius, and his sister, Ethel Rosenberg, because they dangled out in front of him that if he did not testify against his sister, that they would go after his own wife, David Greenglass's wife, Ruth Greenglass, who was in fact involved in some way in espionage. There were encrypted cables back and forth between um, Moscow and the New York City uh, handler, who I I write in in my story, his name is Alexander Feklazov. He's a real person. And these encrypted back and forth messages, when they were decrypted by the U.S. government, it became clear that Ethel did not have a code name, whereas David Greenglass did, Julius Rosenberg did, and David Greenglass's wife, Ruth, did. It was Wasp. So at any rate, clearly David and, and publicly admitted, yeah, the reason why I testified against my sister was because literally, this is the quote, Dr. B, I don't sleep with my sister. That is what he said, it, meaning I'm loyal to my wife, right? I'm loyal to the mother of my kids. I'm not going to be loyal to my sister. So on that most fundamental layer of betrayal of your own brother, your own flesh and blood, she was, there's a lot of evidence that she was betrayed by her own mother, who when she was incarcerated during the course of the trial, the grandmother, Tessie Greenglass, who was Ethel's mother, said of of Ethel's two sons, if you don't start to go along and get along with what the government is doing here, I'm going to take your kids to the orphanage, to the Jewish orphanage. She did, which she then proceeded to do. So Ethel was clearly betrayed by her family of origin and And uh, I think that in terms of society, you know, look at how women were treated in the 1950s. And oh my gosh, I was stunned when I looked at some of the newspaper clippings from that day and age.
age, just the, the advertisements and the way the, it wasn't that long ago. You know, 1950 was not that long ago for women to be portrayed in this way. So I think society very much, she was stymied. She was held into a box. And so I think that was a betrayal. And then there was clearly government overreach. And, you know, we can get into that as we talk more about the case, but prosecutors, there was some misconduct that occurred. So yes, yeah, so I, I feel like she was in more ways betrayed than she betrayed anyone. What kinds of charges did her brother face? Did Ethel's brother face? He also faced conspiracy to commit espionage charges and was because those folks who have been charged and who have owned up to some kind of behavior, their sentences have been much more lenient. So Greenglass spent, you know, about a decade in jail and no one else has had this kind of death penalty sentence. So that was the charges that he faced. And and it was a lot easier to prove conspiracy to commit espionage. It's just knowledge of something going on as opposed to actually getting information and then delivering it. So let's talk about the death sentence. Did you believe that was a miscarriage of justice? Absolutely. Absolutely. And why? There are so many to this day instances in which people have been wrongfully convicted and sentenced to death. That's leveling and shocking in my mind. And, And I realize that this is a personal opinion that I have. So preface everything by saying this is my personal opinion that I don't think there's any way we can be 100% sure that justice is going to be served so that we know that guilty parties are going to be sentenced to death, whether or not the state actually should be allowed to put to death. I mean, so it kind of go down that road. But I would say very specifically in the case of Ethel Rosenberg, she was wrongfully convicted. The only evidence of her involvement in any kind of espionage activities centered around this brother, David Greenglass, who subsequently admitted that he made it up. And and the, the kind of the core of his testimony was that Ethel typed up the notes. So therefore she had to have known. And then later he said, well, it could have been my wife. So she was wrongfully convicted. So there's that piece of it. And then the application of the death sentence on this espionage charge, the reason why that's applicable is because the country was at war during the time of the alleged activity during World War II. The whole idea behind that guidance for the judicial system is that if you're giving information to the enemy during a time of war, that's where that most dramatic penalty would apply. The judge in this case... Irving Kaufman, he said, oh, well, this applies because it was during a time of war. The United States was at war. It was during World War II. But they were providing information to Russia, who was a U.S. ally at that time. So to me, it's intellectually dishonest to say the death penalty is applicable here. But there's great stuff. I would encourage listeners to check out some of the research on the internet. There's plenty of rabbit holes to jump down and and see all of that. But that's where I come out on it, uh, on a larger framework, but also with this case specifically. And of course, to check out your book as well. Thank you. Yes, I hope so. I I do hope folks get into it. And let's talk a little bit about the Rosenberg sons who were, as you said, they were put into an orphanage and then they were adopted by a non-related couple, is my understanding. That's correct. The Mirapools. They have spent decades trying to clear their mother's name. So how have they progressed in this quest? They, in the, during the Obama administration, the last year of the Obama administration, they mounted a campaign with exonerate Ethel. They feel that they've acknowledged that their father was a spy, not necessarily an atomic spy, but he did provide industrial secrets, including the proximity fuse, which was a game changer during the war. So they acknowledge that their father was a spy, but says they did not have a case against our mother. And so they launched this exonerate Ethel campaign. And I recently asked, the younger brother was asked about this case of, are they going to try again? During the Trump administration, 
situation, it seemed unlikely that there would be any hearing of this idea or of the case. And they're contemplating revisiting this now under the Biden administration. It's kind of legally messy because it's not a pardon. You know, it is kind of posthumously what they can they do. And they seem to feel that going for exoneration is their best bet. I do want to also mention that the younger of the two sons, Robert Mirapool, founded this fund. It's the Rosenberg Fund for Children. And in that effort, they've raised millions of dollars for children of jailed activists. So I think it's a really kind of interesting full circle moment in which they took their personal hardships. And in in the case of Robert, and and now his daughter is the executive director of the Rosenberg Fund for Children. And again, that's, that's online. They've also indicated that if they do revisit the Exonerate Ethel campaign, they will announce it on their site, on the Rosenberg Fund for Children site. That's interesting. And it's interesting how things come full circle like that. Yeah, so much so. And let's talk about the society in general during that period of time. The killing of the Rosenbergs was shocking, but it was so resonant of that specific period in American history. Why do you think the case was so riveting to the public at that particular moment in time? This is a great question and something that I hadn't really thought about. I haven't really given that much thought, but it's such a a great thing to consider here. Why, Why did this happen? And my thinking on it is we know that it was the framework was the Red Scare, but where was this anti-Russia sentiment coming from? We And what my thinking on it is, is that the United States came out of the war, out of World War II, late 40s, and people lost family members who had been in service and those who, you know, there was a lot of hardship that was endured. These folks come back, the soldiers come back. And so there, it seems that Americans were very much on the defensive of their life. And they started to look within the United States. Like, what are the threats that are still existing? Okay, we've kind of conquered the world and we've, you know, put out the evil that Hitler is. Now, you know, what what else is there? And kind of in starting to look into the corners and, and being suspect of the minorities, Jewish or communist leaning, so that was kind of the environment in which the Rosenbergs were prosecuted in this case. And, you know, everybody's familiar with McCarthy. It's interesting to note that his main right-hand man was Roy Cohn, who was the very junior prosecutor. He was only 24 years old, which I have a kid who's about that age. And let me tell you, I do not want, you know, anyone's... life to be in her hands with all due respect. I mean, she's a great kid. She's a wonderful person. She's a kid, you know? So uh, anyway, that's a, a side note on Roy Cohn. And, um, but I do think that, that that's the context for which all of this happened. And Roy Cohn as McCarthy's right-hand man per- prosecuted and, and pursued this, saw it as a way to say to, to speak to the country and say, this is what we are. And that is what we are not. I want to talk about the book in terms of it being historical fiction, because I thought that was interesting. And you did a tremendous amount of research for this book, which is fantastic. So why did you decide to write the book about Ethel Rosenberg as a novel rather than a purely historical work? I felt that when I was reading, again, I, my, I'm i a journalist is my day job. And for decades, I've been a reporter. So my first approach was absolutely, I'm going to do some nonfiction. It's going to be, you know, in the, the vein of In Cold Blood, it's going to be, you know, I'm going to really get into to the piece. 
and dig into the facts. And then as I, I started to go through what was out there already, I felt like, you know what, there's a lot out there, but there's really not much fiction or we don't really know much about the beginning of Ethel's life. So we kind of have a recounting of the case, a lot of that. But I was thinking, and I have in the back of my book I've got, and there's great literature out there on the nonfiction, lots of it. And uh, But I felt that there was a real need for some, the story itself to be told in a way that might resonate with more people, uh, readers who aren't necessarily nonfiction readers. So that was kind of one. And then for me personally, as a reporter for all this time, it was just really exciting to maybe let go of the facts a little bit. It was very scary. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what I'm doing here. But to kind of push the creativity a little bit on myself and evolve and try to, to develop as a writer in that vein was super exciting and scary and fun and very rewarding. Do you feel like you want to continue to write fiction? I do. I do. I miss it. I miss the writing of it. So I, I basically, it was a great way during the pandemic to kind of turn inside and use the time of being indoors and kind of locked in and really become reflective and intentional in what I was doing with that time. And I miss that because since the book was published, there's all these things, there's, you know, all the, the social media that you're, you need to engage with readers. And, and I do enjoy that. The actual, t- like talking with you, this is awesome. I am so excited about your podcast. And then it like, it's another, oh, and then I'm listening to all of your other episodes and getting way into it. That I love. The maintaining it and kind of putting together posts and, and doing that part. And it can be a little bit tough with a full-time job. Uh, my day job, it's can be a little tough, but I am excited to do more writing. And I've been thinking about what would be, what would make sense. And I want it to be a story that would otherwise go untold. That's kind of why I wanted to always be a reporter was I wanted to to give voice to underrepresented stories and, and bring them out. And so that's, that's kind of what I'm hoping to do next. Let me also mention that I'm working on the audio book version of Betrayal. And you're narrating it. I'm narrating it. That's awesome. And it, thank you. It, I'm so excited. It's so hard. So my, my regular work, I'm a, a radio reporter. So I thought, oh, this is going to be easy schmeasy. This is what I do for goodness sake. If I can't open a mic and talk, you know, wow, was I clueless. For one, it sounded like an echo chamber in my house, you know. So I'm, I'm sitting in this little closet that we've converted, I've appropriated and converted into, put some, some stuff on the walls. And I listen to music from the 40s to try to get into the right headspace. I have some, some pictures of Ethel that I keep with me, printouts that I, I look at her and I try to remember and be in the right headspace when I do it. it the the audio book platform is new to me. I've, I love reading and actually physically reading, but it's an important platform to be in. And so I've started listening to, I, this is how old I am. I listen to books on tape. Okay. I don't think they call them that anymore, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that, that's what I'm working on now. I also listen to books on tape because I'm your age or older, but yeah, I remember those days of books on tape, but the audiobooks we have today have come so far because now there are more interactional experiences where we have multiple voices and and we have sound effects and all kinds of exciting things that they're doing to make it more of an integrative experience for a person who's listening mm. to an audiobook. Just again, let me just say that in the book, one of the things that I tried to do was to make it interactive. So I have some like fictional artifacts, including a telegram from a soldier in my story from the Korean War, a telegraph home telegram, I'm sorry, home to his to his family and a letter that he writes home. And so 
that a reader is, you know, there's newspaper articles. My fictional, main fictional character is a reporter. And in the very end, towards the end, she she goes from, we're, we're tracking her evolution from a society page reporter to what she sees as a real reporter covering Ethel Rosenberg. And she gets these interviews at Sing Sing with Ethel. And so we created kind of, they look like a newspaper article from that time in the, in the book. So yeah, I, I think that that's where we're so fortunate, as you mentioned, to have these experiences where it really is elevates the, the storytelling. How do you believe Ethel's story can help people navigate the injustices and equities and betrayals they face? I think that we can, and take away some of the lessons that in the way she lived her life. One of the things that's not well known about Ethel is that she unionized in her first job was with a packing and shipping company, National New York Packing and Shipping in Midtown Manhattan. And she felt that the working environment was unsafe and unfair. And so she and a group of other co-workers formed a strike committee. They actually had a strike. People were arrested and she was subsequently fired, sacked for her role in all of it. And so she was one of the first people to file a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board, the newly formed, and this was in the late 30s, I believe 1936. Their ruling in her favor, it may have been the first ruling that they ever made. And so to me, I think about how she kept fighting. She was brave. She wasn't afraid to lose it all. And she did lose it all in the end. And I thought, honestly, I can't imagine if they said, okay, if you don't come up with some names, even if you're making them up, then we're going to, your life will be over and orphaning your kids. I don't know that I could do that. And it's interesting because those two sons will tell you they are glad that she did. They are glad that their parents did that because otherwise they would be living a lie and that, you know, that, that some things are worth dying for. And wow. So what can we take away from it? I would argue like being brave, approaching, going to against not being afraid to go against the odds and really willing to go big with it. Yeah, and be willing to stand up for what you believe in despite the cost. Absolutely. So well said. Exactly. So what's up next for you? What exciting things are happening for you as a writer or in your career? I'm going to have a couple of virtual book talks, which I'm excited about. That's coming up. And I mentioned doing the audio version of the book. And then probably in the fall, I'm going to start to launch my next project and start getting to writing and seeing where that leads me. Super excited to have this platform. I w- one of the things I wanted to say to your listeners is that anybody can be a creator these days. There's And you don't have to be a millionaire. You don't have to self-publish. Uh, there's, there's hybrid publishing. So if you look up hybrid publishing or if anybody wants to jump on my site and email me, I'm happy to spend time with them because I think there are so many great books that are out there and not just books, other platforms for folks to think about what they're going to leave, what is going to be their contribution. And for the longest time, I felt like, who the heck am I? I kind of dealt a little bit with like some imposter feelings, you know, especially as a broadcast. So I'm a broadcast journalism so person. So I was like, oh, you know, the print guys are going to be like, oh, look at this. Who does she think she is? You know, come on. <laughs> 
So truly, if I can do it, anyone can do it. The barriers to entry for most creative pursuits these days have been greatly reduced, which has been very democratizing for creatives. Yeah, again, so I mean, what you what you said, yes, you nailed it. Exactly right. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about you or your work? I just would uh, ask if anybody wants to look me up. I'm, it's my, my website, which was created by my daughter. Uh, it's very much of a family operation, a mom and pop, uh, independently owned and operated. It's myholename.com. And the reason I, I say that is if anybody's interested in more about the journey of writing or is curious about hybrid publishing or just any thoughts like that, or wants to talk more about Ethel Rosenberg, I would love it. So the website is my whole name, Alisa Parenti, A-L-I-S-A. My last name is Parenti, parent with an I in the end, alisaparenti.com. Curse my parents for giving me a name like Alisa. I'm so impressed that you said it correctly, by the way. That's not an option. You know, that's not an obvious thing that happens. Most of the time I get Alyssa or different ones. Okay, I have to admit that I went online until I can, I found old news clips <laughs> of you doing the news. <laughs> and in one of them at the end, you said your name. So that's how I figured out how to say it. <laughs> See, you're such a, a good scientist and researcher. You you know, you go there and uh, and you get it done and you find find the answers. That's so, so awesome. And I'm, I'm really appreciative. Well, it was great to have you on the show, Elisa. Thank you so much for taking time to be a guest on the Curious Professor podcast. Thank you so very much, Dr. B. I can't tell you, I'm, I'm really honored to be on your program. And uh, thank you very much. And now for the answer to this episode's trivia question. In Tony Kushner's play, Angels in America, who does the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg haunt? The ghost of Ethel Rosenberg haunts Roy Cohn. Cohn played a prominent role as a prosecutor in the espionage trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Interestingly, the Rosenberg's granddaughter directed and produced a 2019 documentary, Bully, Coward, Victim, The Story of Roy Cohn, which examines the fascinating and controversial life of the high-profile lawyer. We'll end the show with something punny. What is it called when spies perform Hamlet? Thespionage. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Curious Professor podcast. If there's a person, place, artifact, or natural wonder that has sparked your curiosity and you'd like for me to feature it on the show, please let me know. My website is thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to the Curious Professor podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to become part of my community of curiosity seekers, be sure to visit my website, thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com, and join Dr. B's Hive. Until next time, always be learning and be curious with Dr. B.